Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Okay, comrades. Um, my task is to talk about the history of the Fourth International. Now, I am not going to give a detailed speech in 45 minutes of everything that happened from the day Trotsky was expelled from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union uh, and up till today in the various groups that call themselves the Fourth International. It's a tragedy what happened to the Fourth International because it was an attempt by Trotsky to build a movement modelled on the Bolshevik Party and the best period of the Communist International, uh, the first four congresses. Um, instead, what we've ended up with is, uh, I don't know how many varieties there are. The joke was there's 57 varieties, because I don't you know, Heinz beans, 57 varieties? And even there, even there, I don't think it's 57 varieties. They've got probably more or less, depends. I don't, I don't know, I've not checked it lately. Um, but there's lots and lots of groups who call themselves Trotskyists. So it's a little bit like uh, the fringes, you know, the Christians. How many different Christian sects are there? Which one is the real McCoy, the genuine one? It must be very confusing for people who are looking um, for a genuine Trotskyist position. And it's unfortunate that many of the groups who, who portray themselves as Trotskyists have done a huge disservice to the name Trotsky. Um, in some countries, uh, uh, effectively isolating Trotskyism from the labor movement. But let's go, let's go back in history a little bit. Where does the Trotskyist movement come from? Well, obviously, the, the name itself, Leon Trotsky, was the leader, the theoretician, the founder of the Fourth International. Trotsky was also the leader of the Russian Revolution together with Lenin. In other discussions here, we've seen the role he played in building the Red Army from nothing. Um, but he himself, I think Trotsky himself said that although he played a role in the Russian Revolution, and Alan said he was being a little bit too modest, but what he says is if I hadn't been there, Lenin was there, i.e. a fully developed Marxist cadre such as Lenin with a good understanding and the flexibility to be able to adopt the correct policies in, in, in a situation of sharp turns and sudden changes like the, the October Revolution itself. But what he says, what he says is in, in the 30s, he, he felt that he probably did his most important work. In what sense? If you read some of the articles of Trotsky, you actually see that he was, he was struggling to educate a new layer of cadres, struggling to keep the ideas alive of genuine Marxism. Because with the degeneration of the Soviet <coughs> Union and the Stalinist bureaucratization and the Stalinist distortion of Marxism, and with it also the nature of the regime, I mean, the regime steeped in the blood of uh, dissidents and uh, anybody who opposed the bureaucracy, I mean, a brutal regime which was created under Stalin. Um, unless we can explain how that happened and why it happened, we're lost. Think about it. You convince workers of the need for communism. A lot of them are going to say, what about Russia? How many times have we heard that? What about Russia? Why? Are you, are you suggesting that we have a regime like we had under Stalin? And, and if, that's, if your answer is yes, 
And there are some groups who actually would answer like that. You know, there are the Stalinist groups who would still today say, yes, that was genuinely coming. Then you're never going to build a mass revolutionary force in a million years because workers, they're not into revolution to be dictated to by somebody else after they've liberated themselves from capitalism. Now, the man who analyzed that phenomenon and explained it as a um, part of a process of degeneration in a backward country, isolated, with the revolution defeated around the world, was Leon Trotsky. And his, uh, the best work on that is The Revolution Betrayed, but there's other works that he's written. Um, even the book on Stalin is a marvelous work of analysis of the phenomenon of Stalinism. Um, and it provides an answer as to why that happened and why it's not inevitable. Stalinism is not inevitable. But the only way to make it, um, uh, to, to stop it being inevitable it, it is world revolution. It means a revolution not in one country, but a global revolution. It could start in one country like it did in Russia in 1917. But if it had, imagine if Russia had, if the revolution had succeeded in Germany in 1918, in Hungary in 1919, in Italy in 1920, these were all revolutions. So a few years later, the Chinese workers came to, had come to power. Um, imagine the effect that would have had on a global scale. It would have been a rolling revolution around the world and the collapse of capitalism. And even Stalin wouldn't have become the man he did. He would have remained uh, a second-rate, basically, leader of the party, doing his little role. Um, and he wouldn't have had the material base upon which to rise, which was the bureaucracy within a backward country isolated um, in Russia. Now, I'm not going to go into analysis of that. I advise you to read Trotsky's Revolution in Trade. It's an excellent work. But... In the process of degeneration, Trotsky embodied the opposition of genuine communists to this process. Um, many uh, Bolsheviks uh, would have remembered what they'd been fighting for before 1917 and what they had in 1925, 27, 30, 36, etc. The glaring difference between the ideals of October and what emerged under Stalin. Now, Trotsky paid a big price for his opposition. First, he was isolated in the Soviet Union. He was expelled from the party, internal exile, and eventually he was exiled out of the country. Stalin, um, he made a mistake there. I think if Stalin had some hindsight, he wouldn't have sent Trotsky abroad um, for what he did. Then he spent the rest of the, the, the next decade trying to kill him um, because of the ideas that Trotsky represented. Stalin, uh, he understood that what Trotsky stood for had a part could, could have a powerful effect in certain circumstances. So Trotsky first developed the left opposition inside the Soviet Communist Party. At different moments, I'm not going to go into the detailed history of it, in an alliance with Zinoviev and Kamenev, attempting. Um, Kamenev and Zinoviev believed they could actually control Stalin, um, but they failed to do that. And, it, and when they saw the terror, they actually buckled under and broke with Trotsky. Trotsky was the, the main leader who actually stood his ground. And that was because he was fully grounded in the ideas of Marxism, and he understood the phenomenon that was taking place. Um, Alan mentioned it yesterday. You know, the, the perspectives of the left opposition around Trotsky for China were that if the policies adopted by the Comintern in China, if, if they adopted the policies of, you know, Zinoviev and Stalin and the others, um, the, the idea of um, the progressive bourgeoisie and alliance with it, the democratic revolution, uh, first stage, all this stuff, and the necessity to have an alliance with Chiang Kai-shek would lead to a defeat. Trotsky was absolutely correct. He was 
defeated and the communists were massacred uh, in, in, in huge numbers by, by Chiang Kai-shek's forces. And the young, young Trotsky, young supporters of the left opposition, went to Trotsky and said, we're stronger now because we've been proved to be correct. And Trotsky was, the, the greatness of Trotsky, you could see it, and he said, no, comrade, we're not stronger. We're weaker now because this further isolates the revolution. The defeat of China will have a demoralizing effect on the working class of Russia and will therefore strengthen the bureaucracy within the Soviet Union. And therefore, objectively speaking, although we're correct, 100% correct, we're weaker than we were. It's not enough to be right. It's, it's also an objective uh, process. Now, eventually Trotsky was, was sent into exile. And in the same period, uh, opposition groups emerged within the communist parties um, over different questions. In Italy, for example, three members of the Italian Communist Party Central Committee came out in, and, and supported Trotsky. They didn't originally support him, but the reason it was for, it was for specific Italian conditions. The, the Stalinist, uh, the, 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 the Comintern at that period was in its third period of, of uh, uh, ultra-leftism. And they had a perspective of 1929 crash was going to lead to uh, class struggle and revolution immediately, even in Italy where there was a fascist dictatorship that had just consolidated its grip on power in 1926 when it abolished all the other parties. And the idea was that in Italy there was going to be a revival of the class struggle and the collapse of uh, fascism. Well, I tell you, even the, Stalins, the future Stalinist leaders of the Italian Communist Party uh, <clears throat> hiccuped a little bit at that one. Even Toyati was like, oh, don't know about that. But he was a bureaucrat and he towed the line. Others said, this is ridiculous. The conditions in Italy are not of a revival of the class struggle. They're very wrong. And Trotsky, therefore, was able to attract these opposition groups within the communist parties. And it was around that that the international left opposition um, developed with groups in several um, countries. Um, the American Trotskyists, for example, uh, they emerged from um, James Cannon, who was a leader of the American Communist Party, going to Russia for a congress and the, bureau the, the Stalinist bureaucracy somehow made a mistake. They had, they had to translate Trotsky's document, but they got a copy of it and they kept it. And they took it back to America and started reading it secretly in the Communist Party branches. And that's how uh, significant, also Cannon being a leader of the Communist Party, won over a faction. And the American Trotskyists emerged from that. And if you want, you could say that we also connected to it because the American Trotskyists used to send their copy of the paper, the militant, around the world, and they sent it to a bookshop in South Africa. Um, the, a young kid, 15-year-old kid called Ted, turned up and bought, the, bought, bought it, liked it, and kept coming back for the, for the copies. That's how Ted got involved um, in the left opposition from, from the very early days. Now, initially, the Trotskyist movement considered itself a faction of the Comintern. Their idea was that we can reform uh, the communist parties, we can win them back, to a genuine revolutionary policy. Um, and they acted as a faction um, within the Communist parties, although in fact um, um, expelled. Now, in um, 1933 in Paris, there were representatives from 11 European and American sections um, to form the international left opposition. Trotsky wrote a document called The International Left Opposition's Tasks and Methods. Um, which he'd written in preparation for that meeting. Um, and it was on the basis of that that the initial left opposition groupings internationally um, were formed. Now, um, up until 1933, 
The Trotskyists considered themselves a faction, although expelled. What did that mean? It meant that the way you approach the Communist Party rank and file was not, we're building a new party, but we're trying to defend the ideas of Lenin and of October and, and, win, and regenerate the Communist Party, uh, win it back to the original ideas. And it was an attempt to try and not have an, a, a barrier between them and the ranks of the Communist Party. The truth is that the Communist Parties were very difficult to penetrate because they were... The, the, the leadership of the Comintern was basking in the glory of the October Revolution, which was a very recent event. And on that basis, they could actually get away with all kinds of zigzags um, because of the authority of the Russian Communist Party and of, 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 of the leadership of the Comintern based in Moscow. Um, anybody who's critical, um, I'm not going to go into the process of degeneration of the Comintern and why this all happened, but it became that any, anybody who had the ideas of Trotsky was seen as an enemy as a bourgeois, as a fascist, um, to be destroyed, to be kicked out, to be um, removed. Um, and it, it was difficult, although they did win the initial nuclear, the, all the initial nuclear came from within the communist parties. But after 1933, something had changed. Uh, what changed was the way the communist parties behaved around the question of the taking of power of Hitler, by Hitler. Um, the communist parties, had the perspective that Hitler coming to power was simply preparing the ground for the Communist parties to come to power shortly afterwards. And in their ultra-leftism, they even, at times, attacked, for instance, socialist, social democratic organizations and trade unions led by them, um, in a de facto, although not a declared alliance, with the Nazis. And Trotsky reached the conclusion that an organization that can behave like this and draw these conclusions is dead from the point of view of revolutionary um, uh, politics. And it was after that that they declared the need for um, a new international. And in fact, he, in, um, in July 1933, he, put, he, he wrote uh, a document called It is Necessary, um, he, he, he wrote, It is Necessary to Build Communist Parties and an International Anew. Um, now, the international left opposition changed its name to the International Communist League, giving the idea that it was more organizational. Uh, <coughs> identity rather than just uh, a tendency or an opposition. And um, the next five years were dedicated to gathering the forces to found the Fourth International. Now, in this period, we had dramatic events. We had the Spanish Civil War, the revolution in Spain. We had the mass sit-down strikes in France. Um, and we had examples of what could be done by Trotskyists if they were serious in their... Um, uh, in their approach and their application of Trotsky's ideas. In Spain, for example, um, under the blows of the, of the revolution, the Spanish Young Socialists, the youth wing of the Social, Socialist Party, moved radically to the left. The leaders of the Young Socialists invited the Trotskyists of, of Nin and the others to join the Young Socialists and help them to Bolshevize the organization. But these so-called Trotskyists refused on the basis of, no, 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 the independence of the Revolutionary Party, etc., etc., etc. The result was the Stalinists in Spain, who were a very small force, only had a few hundred, although they were, they were, they were, they were, they were treacherous in their policies, they could see the opportunities. They went into the Young Socialists. Carrillo, who became the future uh, General Secretary of the, of the Spanish Communist Party, emerged in that period as a leader of the Young Socialists and was won over to the Stalinist position. It was an opportunity lost. 
um, by the so-called Trotskyists. Um, and Trotsky had one hell of a problem with the so-called Trots of, of Trots in the 1930s. Anytime he, he, he raised the idea of a tactical turn or some change in their method, instead of a, a discussion and unity and moving in and doing the work, it provoked all kinds of internal conflicts and even splits. In Britain, they had about 40 members, and they discussed the question of the ILP. Trotsky could see the importance of the ILP and advised the Trotskyists to enter. They, they split them over the question. Oh, what about the independence of the party? What this, that, the other? And Trotsky must have been tearing his hair out with, the, with these people. In France, the same thing happened. The Socialist Party of France, the SFIO, um, moved radically to the left in, in a centrist direction with the revolutionary phraseology. The leaders of the Socialist Party invited everybody on the left, all the left groups, to join the party with the right uh, to, to, to tendencies and everything. And Trotsky advised the French Trotskyists to go in. And again, that provoked a, a, one hell of a, of a discussion amongst the French Trotskyists. Oh, no, but what, what will the Communist Party say? If we join the Socialist Party, they'll be traitors and all the rest of it. And um, eventually they did, and they did win a significant number of, um, of um, members from the Socialist Party, but uh, wasting time. In America, they had just launched an independent organization when the American Socialist Party started to develop. And Cannon explains it. What they, were, they were working with the youth, and then they found that all the, young con all the good young kids they were meeting were looking to the Socialist Party. And it was, it, it, was it was difficult for them to recruit to them because they were all going towards the Socialist Party, which had a left wing developing there. The Americans followed Trotsky's advice. No problem. They dissolved the open organization and joined the Socialist Party. They eventually got expelled, but they came out with three times the members they'd gone in with. They won over those youth that were going looking to the Socialist Party. This is what was going on um, internationally. Trotsky also made attempts to form an international uh, grouping with other, with centrist groupings like in Germany and Holland and that, an attempt to work with others who weren't completely on the line, but that, um, that failed. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of that. Now, in September 1938, there was a meeting in a village in, uh, in France, in Perigny. Um, it was Rosmer's, Alfred Rosmer's house, apparently. 21 delega delegations from 11 countries for the founding Congress of the Fourth International. That's where the Fourth International is actually declared um, as an organization. Um, but consider the conditions in which they were building. You think that it's difficult today. Um, listen to this. Um, they sent out a circular saying that the Congress was going to be held in Lausanne, Switzerland. Why? They were trying to put off the Stalinist spies who were trying to find out where they were having their meeting. Failed to do so because there were two <coughs> Stalinist agents present at the founding Congress of the Fourth International. Um, but um, GPU agents at that, in that period, what were they doing? They had a campaign of assassination of Trotskyists outside of Russia. In 1938, Erwin Wolf, Trotsky's secretary, was kidnapped and killed in Spain. Ignas, Ignas Rice, a high-ranking GPU official, after he moved in, and publicly in support of Trotsky, was assassinated. Lev, Lev, Lev Sedov, Trotsky's son, um, and really his, his most loyal supporter, um, was killed by the GPU in February 1938. Um, and then Rudolf Clement, the secretary of the Bureau of the Fourth International, who was responsible for organizing the, the founding Congress, was kidnapped in July 1938, and his decapitated body was found in the Seine uh, River days later. 
These are the Trotskyists that we have something to learn from and a tradition which is ours. These are the men and women who, in spite of everything, did everything they could to defend the genuine traditions of Marxism and of Bolshevism. And as I said, there were two agents present at that Congress. Etienne, um, was, uh, a guy called Etienne, was responsible for the killing of Sedov, and Jacques Monard, who two years later held an ice pick into Trotsky's head skull. Um, Stalin was following the Trotskyists very carefully because he realized, um, although very small, the potential for their ideas to have a huge impact in the, given, uh, in, in the right conditions. Um, now, when they held the Congress, uh, the, the minutes of the Congress showed that they, the, 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 the forces that were founded the Fourth International apparently had 5,000 members uh, in 18 countries. The biggest section was the United States, with 2,500. Belgium had 800, France had 600, in Poland they had 350, in England they claimed 170, Germany 200, Czechoslovakia about 150, Greece 100, and people in Cuba, South Africa, Canada, Brazil, Holland, Spain, and Mexico, and a few um, other countries. These were the forces represented at the Congress of the Fourth International. Trotsky wrote the founding document, which is the transitional program, which is something we still base ourselves on. 38. Um, now, here is where uh, I want to mention what happened to the group that Ted Grant was involved in. <coughs> um, this is not about uh, Ted Grant. We've had other discussions on this. But Ted joined the Trotskyists in South Africa. And some of them decided that uh, there were much better conditions in Europe for the building of a Marxist um, force of the Trotskyist opposition. And for obvious reasons, language reasons, some of them, a group of them came to Britain. And Ted came to Britain, I think it was in 1934, um, and as, as a very young man, and joined the groups in Britain. And he, he described the situation. There were different groups fighting each other, some more sectarian than others. Um, and he ended up forming a group called the Will, the Workers' International League, in 1938, just before the um, founding of the, of, the, of the Fourth International. Um, there were about four groups claiming to be Trotskyist, and Cannon came from America. And he came from America to try and fuse the groups together. Um, now, this, is, this is, connects to things we discussed in other sessions, the unity of the left. Um, Ted explained that there, were no principled, uh, there was no principled basis upon which this unity could be achieved. There were such differences between them that it couldn't work. Ted often used to say, yeah, fusing four organizations into ten, because the result is they all come together, and they start fighting each other, and they split up again. And uh, what have you achieved? And um, they went into the discussions, but uh, Ted and, and the others said, look, there's no, there's no principled uh, unity. <coughs> some were for working in the Labour Party, some were not. There were dif different, different um, ideas. So Ted, because he didn't accept Cannon's imposition of fusing everybody together by force, uh, you'll see subsequently over the years, Cannon, uh, how do you say, despised Ted? Couldn't stand him, really. Because he dared to say, no, this can't work. Because what Cannon wanted, and this was unfortunately a part of his characteristics, were prestige politics. I went to England, and I united them all together. We got a strong section, and then you go to the conference in Paris. And what a fantastic job you've done. Ted was a little bit, uh, was, was saying, well, that, it's not just about unity. It's about uh, unity of the principles and the ideas. Um, what happened was that they, had, they, they launched the Fourth International just before the war. 
Um, some people have said, oh, was it, uh, was it really right? Should they have done it? Was the time right? All the rest of it. The question was this. Trotsky could see that the world was moving towards uh, world war, and with it came the perspective of the revolutionary consequences of a war, such as happened after the First World War. Trotsky's perspectives were that the war would end up like the First World War, with one revolution after another, and in these conditions, the Trotskyists of the Fourth International would emerge as a powerful force. Um, these were the perspectives. Now, in Britain, Ted's group, um, starting with six in 1938, during the Second World War, um, developed into one of the most important sections, probably the, the most important in Europe in terms of size uh, and influence, um, reaching close to something like 500. They were selling 20,000 papers, they had shop stewards, they had trade unionists. Um, a significant development, you think they only started with six in 1938. Um, there was a division over the question of the uh, military policy. Now Trotsky explained, uh, Trotsky actually developed it. It's amazing how so-called Trotskyists didn't agree with Trotsky's position on the military policy. He developed it in America, and, and, and it was valid for Britain. Um, should American Trotskyists um, not go into the army, for instance? Um, should we just denounce the war as a war between imperialisms, and it doesn't make any difference who wins? Actually, better the, the, the defeat of your own bourgeoisie, which was the general position in the First World War. Trotsky elaborated on that. And you see, you've got to be very concrete. In a country like Britain, where the war is being fought by the bourgeois under the banner of an anti-fascist war, where the workers of Britain had seen the, the Italian workers succumb to fascism, the German workers under Na the, the Nazis, the defeat of the Spanish under Franco, Europe seemed to be, there's been a wave of reaction, of a fascist reaction engulfing the whole of Europe. And then for their own reasons, obviously the imperialists go to war against each other because Germany was, was emerging too powerful for the British. It was an imperialist war on both sides. But they sold it to the British workers as an anti-fascist war. And to go to the British workers and say basically this, better the defeat of your own bourgeoisie, translated into good English, that meant the victory of Hitler. What else could it mean? It meant the occupation of Britain by the Nazis. Well, it's not, a, it's, not by, it's not a surprise that the so-called official section of the Fourth International didn't get anywhere during the Second World War. Found it very difficult to raise these revolutionary ideas outside, as Ted said, outside of the bedroom. Um, because they just couldn't connect with the working class. We explained, you can't trust the bourgeoisie. They, they say it's an anti-fascist war. We can't trust this bourgeoisie that supported Mussolini when it came to power. They supported all the fascist regimes when they came to power. And they only came, went into war when their interests were, were, uh, were being uh, uh, attacked. And Trotsky explained this in America too. The same thing applied to the Americans. And he said they developed an approach which was, you know, trade union, um, trade unionization of the, of the soldiers, uh, trade union control over guns, um, work, training the workers in the factories, basically posing it this way. The only way to really defeat the Nazis genuinely is by the workers taking control of this so-called anti-fascist war and turning it into a, a, a workers' war, um, also with an internationalist approach to the Germans. Because the anti-fascist war of the bourgeois was also tainted with racism um, towards all Germans, all Italians. You know? Ted's group developed on a big scale 
thanks to their ability to connect with workers, and they won a lot of workers up and down the country. And eventually, the leaders of the Fourth International, who had refused to recognize Ted's group as the section, in 1944 were, were forced to accept. To them, it was just a question of, well, a group of several hundreds and a, a tiny group of sectarians, they went for the bigger group. I think that was their principles, not a question of ideas. And then they managed to fuse the smaller sectarian grouping, which was the official section, together with Ted's organization. And this was what led to the founding of the Revolutionary Communist Party, um, which was a successful organization. But uh, I can't go into the details of that. It's what happens after the war, which, it, which interests us here. The perspectives of revolution, as developed by Trotsky, some comrades say they were falsified. I'd rather say that the revolutions were defeated, because the fact is there was a civil war in Greece, which was a, re a, re a revolution in all intents and purposes, which was defeated by the mistakes of the Stalins and by the British imperialist intervention. In Italy, there were 300,000 armed partisans. They're, they're the people who, released, who, who um, liberated the cities not the Americans or the British armies. They were far behind. And where they did um, liberate uh, areas in the south, I've got all the books at home that record it, the red flag went up and the Soviet Republic of this village or that village was declared when the Nazis were forced out. Then the Americans came in who liberated these people and took down the red flag and stopped them from calling it a socialist republic. And somewhere, sometimes the Americans would then move on and the people would put the red flag back up and redeclare the socialist republic. It shows you the potential that existed um, at, um, at that time. In France, the resistance movement. And more globally speaking, in India, the movement against colonial uh, imperialist domination, the liberation of India, the Chinese revolution, which led to the overthrow of capitalism and feudalism. Trotsky was right in the sense of what the Second World War would produce. But there was also other elements which he couldn't predict. For instance, um, the Soviet Union emerged much stronger uh, out of the Second World War. Um, the, the, the planned economy meant that they could regroup their industries and then they reorganized the army and they then smashed the Nazi, the Nazi war machine. The Second World War was in fact mostly fought on the Eastern Front. That's where most of the killing and the dying took place. And it was the Russians who entered Germany from the East. Um, but America, not suffering the bombing, wasn't involved in actual war on its territory apart from Pearl Harbor. Emerged from the Second World War, enormously strengthened. Uh, huge accumulation of capital. If you look at the accumulation of capital in America during the Second World War, based on war production, an immense accumulation of capital, which was subsequently used to put capitalism back on its feet in, um, in Western Europe. They helped Germany, Italy, for the fear of communism um, spreading. And they had a good reason to fear. Um, what, what this meant was, on the one hand, the Stalinists were, were strengthened. And with this came an also a strengthening of the authority of the communist parties. It was quite difficult to penetrate these parties when it seemed that they weren't betraying. They were actually exporting revolution to Poland, to Czechoslovakia, to Bulgaria, to Romania. In China, subsequently, they actually took power in a peasant war. So it seemed that the Stalinists were actually carrying out revolution and spreading um, socialism. Um, the Trotskyists were too small. That's the fact of the matter. Even the successful work of Ted and the RCP, um, of having 500 comrades, 20,000 papers, trade unionists and everything, it's still a tiny little organization compared to the working class of Britain. What happened in Britain was 
the, 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 the swing to the left, which, which was an international phenomenon, expressed itself in the landslide victory of the Labour Party in the elections. Churchill couldn't understand it. Here was the great war leader. He was expecting to cash in on that. But the, the, view, the views of the British working class were quite clear. They kicked the Tories out um, at, at the, after the Second World War and uh, elected a Labour government. A Labour government which actually carried out many reforms. National health, railways, nationalisation of mines, etc. Um, and what was happening in the economy was an economic recovery based on the destruction of the Second World War and the accumulation of capital during the Second World War, particularly in America, led to the beginnings of an economic boom. Now, there were defeats of the working class, like the defeats in Greece, in Italy, and other countries, followed on by an economic boom. And what we had was the end of the revolutionary wave, the stabilization of capitalism, and a, and a renewed expansion of capitalism on the basis of the destruction of the war, the new investments, also new industries, etc., new, new developments in, in, you know, in, in the chemical industry, plastics, rock, etc. And what we saw was the beginning of really the most, uh, the biggest expansion of capitalism, the biggest, most powerful boom in the whole of history. Now, what happens when such a phenomenon emerges? Well, it becomes very difficult. I said it in another discussion to argue um, Marxist ideas and revolutionary politics when there's full employment. You know, my, uh, my dad was a steel worker. He came to this country in 1952, and he said to me, there was a huge shortage of labor. There was no such thing as unemployment. Um, so powerful was the working class that he worked in a steel plant, and he said they never went on strike, not because of lack of militancy, precisely the opposite. Because the workers were prepared to strike at the drop of a hat, if the, if the shop steward went to the management and asked for something and the managers refused, he said to me, the shop steward would come out and just say, right, we're all out. And the manager said, no, 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 let's discuss. Because those workers would have gone on strike and there was no reserve army. There was no unemployed. There was no way they could maneuver against those workers. And the workers could actually win significant increases um, in, their, in, their, in their wages and living conditions. This was the reality. But... Let's go back to the Fourth International. What were the leaders of the Fourth International saying in this situation? Well, Ted Grant wrote in 1946 um, an analysis of the economy, things called economic perspectives. He said, this is what Ted said, all the factors on a European and world scale indicate that the economic activity in Western Europe in the next period is not one of stagnation and slump, but one of revival and boom. This is Ted Grant. And um, he says, the classic conditions are for boom are present. And he went on and on and on. I won't repeat it. It's, in the, it's, in, it's on the internet. It's Economic Perspectives, 1946 by Ted Grant. What were the leaders of the fourth uh, international saying? If I can find it, otherwise I'll go on memory. Um, <clears throat> this is it. This is it. 1946. This is the leaders of the fourth international. What confronts us now is a worldwide crisis transcending anything known in the past and a worldwide revolutionary upsurge developing to be short and equal tempos in different parts of the world, but unceasingly exercising reciprocal influences from one center to another and, dis and thus determining a long revolutionary perspective. Written in 1946, same year that Ted 
was writing his analysis. Now, how come? There's Ted, a Trotskyist, and here is a document which um, I think Ernest Mandel and others contributed to writing. Uh, make an enormous blunder like this. There's there's somebody who can see a boom taking place, and now with the hindsight, with the, with the, uh, in hindsight, we can say that obviously Ted was right in analysing because who can challenge the idea there was a boom? It started in the 40s and continued at least until the 70s. And then there's these leaders here, so-called leaders, saying the opposite. They didn't just say there was going to be a um, uh, crisis of capitalism and revolution. Um, they also referred to Russia. Russia was going to collapse, you see. Russia was weakened. It was on the verge of collapse. Um, what did they say about China? Well, now we're going to betray Chiang Kai-shek by uh, surrendering to him. Um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of interesting things, but a really, really crazy one is this. I'll read to you, and then I'll tell you who it was. The Third World Congress of the Trotskyists has clearly drawn the positions of our movement in the coming war. We are in the camp of the USSR of China, the people's democracies, against the camp of imperialism. This position has not emerged unexpectedly. Blah, 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 blah. And then it goes on. The preparations for the Third World War have taken an intensive character. Canon, uh, in 51. I just quoted here from Pierre Frank, if you didn't know who he was, uh, a so-called leader of the Fourth International. Um, this is Cannon, the great James Cannon, 1951. At the present hour, we have a localized war in Korea, which has already taken a toll of two million lives, and all-out preparations for a third world war, with international civil war and revolution implicit in the event. And Ted was saying, no, <laughs> sorry, you got it wrong. Uh, he went to a meeting, apparently, it was, it was a bit of a joke. He went to a meeting in Paris, and some young French Trotskyist was, was almost in tears, and she said, you know, Ted, I'm so sad. Um, we may never see each other again, you know, after the nuclear bombs. And I think Ted says something like, don't worry, sleep, uh, sleep well, I'm sure we'll meet again. You know? It was just completely off the mark. It was out of reality. Now, um, why did this happen? What was happening to the Fourth International? Well, the truth of the matter is, these people had not understood Marxism, they had not understood Trotsky's method. Marxism was a dogma. You see, there's the joke, but it was, it was real. Uh, Trotsky in 1938 made a propagandistic sort of statement, you know, uh, um, within a decade, not, stone, not one stone will stand upon another of the old uh, you know, social democratic and Stalinist organizations, and the Fourth International would emerge as the force on the planet, which was a perspective uh, based on what he hoped the Fourth would build. In 1947, in a, in a meeting, there was when Ted and the others were making these criticisms, but look, the situation has changed. The, the, that, the revolutionary wave has passed. Capitalism has stabilized. Stalinism has strengthened. We need to reevaluate the situation and develop our perspectives. And one of these guys said, what do you mean? There's, there's, there's still a, a year to go. 1947. Why? Well, 1948 was 10 years from when Trotsky said this would happen. Therefore, if Trotsky said it would happen, it must happen. Now, that's not exactly a Marxist method um, in, in any way. Uh, because Trotsky had said that the Second World War would lead to revolution, and I was, I was just wonder, how could somebody in, 19, in, in, in the late 40s, even in 1950, they, 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 here they were predicting the Third World War, but they were actually saying after the Second World War had finished that the Second World War hadn't finished. And I, I remember when I used to read this and think, how could you say such a thing? And then another idea they developed was capitalism can never 
develop the productive forces beyond the levels they'd reached in 1938. I actually think, why 1938? Where, where's, where's, the, where's the scientific analysis and approach to that? And there wasn't, I think, and then it, I remember it, was, it clicked. Ah, oh, of course, yeah, because Trotsky in 1938 said capitalism can't develop the productive forces, which in 1938 was true. It was in deep crisis and facing war. He never said it will never, ever, ever again develop productive forces. In fact, if you read Trotsky in the 1920s, he actually um, raises it in 1925, I think it was, the theoretical possibility of a recovery of capitalism. He, he put it forward as the most unli unlikely perspective because in 1925, clearly the perspective was towards an, an immense crash of capitalism. 1929 confirmed it. But he said that if in this period the working class doesn't take power, capitalism can restabilize. And he said they could. He, he raised the poss possibility of another 40-year period of boom, such as the 1870 to, you know, to the First World War. And he said that in such circumstances, they will bury us, i.e., the capitalists will bury the revolutionary Marxists, because we, we won't be able to develop as a force in those material conditions. Trotsky was a bit more developed and a bit more of an understanding of the different possibilities. But these guys, 1938, a bit like the Jehovah's Witnesses, really, the world is going to end at such and such a date, because it says here, it's written here. And because Trotsky said, that's what must happen. This is reducing Marxism, really, to a, a, a caricature, a ridiculous uh, point of view. Go back to my, my dad in the factory. If you had been a member of the RCP, uh, following the line of Healy and the Fourth International leaders, you'd have gone into the factory and you'd have said, there's no boom, there's a crisis, and there's revolution. And this worker's going, they're asking me to do overtime. Uh, they, they, they can't find enough workers. They're going across Europe, they're going to Greece and Italy and Spain and other places, and they're, they're sucking in foreign workers because there's not enough uh, manpower to run the industry. And you're telling me that there's no crisis, there's a crisis of capitalism and revolution around the corner. That explains why the organization collapsed. Ideas is what organization is built on. It's not how much money you have, how big your offices are, uh, your newspaper, how many full-timers you have, or all of that. It's all important. But it's only, that is only an apparatus to carry ideas. And if the ideas become so crazy no matter how much money and forces you've got, you're going to destroy the party and, and the organization that you've accumulated because it's completely false. Now, Ted attempted to struggle against this. They put forward amendments to the 1946 conference on Russia where they said exact opposite to what they were saying. They were saying it's been strengthened, Stalinism. It has practical consequences. If you think capitalism is on, uh, Russia's on the verge of collapse, then it's going to, it's going to mean the breakup and the, 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 the you know, crisis inside the communist parties which wasn't the case because Russia was not weakened. It was immensely um, strengthened. If you think that there's, gonna, that there's a crisis of, of capitalism, then you're expecting revolution around the corner, which is what they were selling to the ranks of, their, of, the, of, the, of the international. And of course, it was utterly false. What effect did it have? A huge collapse in the membership of the fourth in the different sections, a crisis, and then splits and split after split. And all of these, all of these groups... We have to say it, if you know, you know the Cliffites, the Socialist Workers' Party, the Mandalites, who are now, I don't know, lots of different groups, um, the Heliites, uh, that he was responsible for the, for the maneuvers inside the RCP in that period. Um, all of them come 
from the mistakes of 1946. They all have that common um, genetic uh, material, let's say DNA, if you want to put, if you want to put it that way. Um, to this day, there's a group in France, um, the Lambertists, who for a period uh, were in alliance with Healy. To this day, they deny that they actually deny that capitalism has developed the productive forces beyond the level of 1938. They still stick to that position. How they do it, I don't know. They do it by, by all kinds of funny tricks and they're looking at statistics and all the rest of it. Um, now, the, um, in China, 1948-49, Mao came to power. The perspectives of the Fourth International were that Mao was not going to come to power, um, that he was going to betray and have an alliance with Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Ted actually wrote articles before Mao came to power, they're there uh, in, in the books, explaining why he would come to power, not only why he would come to power, the nature of the regime that he would create, and he said, although it will be an immense step forward for humanity because it will be the abolition of capitalism and landlordism in a large part of the world, it will be mo it's modelled on the Soviet Union. It's going to be a party with a bureaucracy and not workers' democracy, and the workers of China will have to organize a second political revolution in order to be able to move towards genuine um, socialism. Instead, what happened? When, once Mao came to power, contradicting, came to, contradicting completely the perspectives of the fourth international leaders, they couldn't understand what was happening. What? It's, it's socialist revolution. They went from declaring that China was a capitalist state to declaring that, that the Mao was an unconscious Trotskyist, that he was carrying out Trotskyist policy, although he wasn't fully aware of it. They said the same thing about Tito, um, and what, what Ted answered was, if anything, Mao is an unconscious Stalinist. Uh, at best, that's what you can say about him. Um, but they zigzagged all over the place. And um, let's see if I've missed anything that I wanted to include in this. Um, you see, no, I'm not going to read all that. I think I've given enough a taste of that. This, this, um, this development in the Fourth International, was a consequence of a complete lack of understanding. One, of method of Marxism in its analysis, and two, actually denying the reality in front of you. Denying the boom. Denying that the Soviet Union had been strengthened. Denying that Mao was taking power. And what, what, why did they continue to make the mistakes? Because, you know, you can make a mistake. I don't think there's anybody here that has never made a mistake. I think it was, was it Napoleon who said, you show me a man that doesn't make a mistake, and I'll show a man that does nothing. If you do nothing, then obviously you know you never make a mistake. Um, but um, you make a mistake if you're a genuine Marxist. You analyze it, you draw out all the conclusions, you admit the mistake, and you develop the ideas. And I think a Marxist leadership that is capable of doing that actually strengthens its authority. That's the only way a Marxist leadership can actually have authority. It's a moral and political authority based on the fact that you can prove in practice that you actually have a method of analysis and a perspective which helps us to understand the real process. That's what strengthens a Marxist leadership. And if you've made a mistake and you admit it, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a, a tendency, there's a certain type of pol politician, political figure on the left, so-called revolutionary left, who are totally incapable of admitting, admitting mistakes. Why? Because the idea, and this, this doesn't happen just in politics, this happens in a family, in a group of friends, in a knitting club, Anywhere you want to go, you don't admit the mistake because you think that if you admit the mistake is going to destroy your reputation and you're going to be uh, less respected. We've all seen the types. You argue with them. They've made a hell of a lot of mistakes and they refuse to admit it. 
And you end up thinking, oh, I'm giving up on this guy. I'm not going to talk to him anymore because it's just hopeless. These leaders had the reputation to defend and had prestige, prestige politics. Very venomous, very destructive thing, especially in revolutionary politics. They could not admit the mistakes they'd made. And therefore, what happened? Those comrades, such as Ted Grant and the others, were hounded out of the Fourth International. In America, there was Felix Morrow, who I've read some of his stuff, not, a, not, not as sharp as Ted's, but he, he developed a whole series of criticisms which proved to be valid criticisms. The way he was treated in the American section was like enemy number one. He's got to be destroyed. He's got to be removed. Um, and they, 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 they painted a picture of them as enemies and ended up just destroying them politically. But in the process, also destroying the organization that does that. Because if, if you were educating an organization, a Marxist organization with those methods, then you're asking for more and more trouble. Because you, you remove the ability to understand the real situation out there, and you're transformed into a sect which cannot see what's outside. Why? You impose on reality your preconceived views. And the Fourth International leaders <coughs> couldn't understand the Marxist method of Trotsky, and therefore they imposed on reality. The war hasn't finished. Then when they had to admit that it had finished, we're preparing the Third World War. There's no economic boom. But there was an economic boom. Russia's going to collapse. <coughs> and they made one mistake after another, and they demanded obedience from the ranks. That meant pushing out all the best elements, all the best, the thinking elements of the, of the Fourth International, the critical elements of the, just a minute, there's a boom. Uh, can't, we, can't we just discuss that, maybe? If, if I say there's a boom, that doesn't make me an enemy of communism or Marxism. You know, I'm just actually trying to develop something which I can see out there. Out. And that's the way he ran the organization when he was put in, in charge in Britain. And Ted was expelled. They expelled people who voted against the expulsion of other people. That's how bad it was under Healy, you know. They expelled uh, people who opposed. Then there were comrades who supported Healy, but didn't support the expulsion. Out. Because it was... A, you can see what kind of organization you end up with. You end up selecting the worst elements possible, a complete bureaucratization, and, and you turn into a sect in, 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 in such a situation. That is what happened to the Fourth International. And Ted eventually was expelled in 1915. Uh, because of his opposition. But put it this way, I can quote from Ted from 1946 without any shame whatsoever. I can quote proudly from what Ted said. Because look, he, was, he, he, he could see it in 1946. It's very easy for me to see it in 2013. Nobody can question the fact that there was a boom after the Second World War. But what about these people who are supporters of Healy or Cannon or whatever? Can they quote... The impending you know, Third World War, the collapse of capitalism. Can they quote that? No, they don't. They bury it. They bury it. And sometimes even rewrite their own histories to try and make themselves look as if they were brilliant Marxists. This was a consequence of a lack of understanding of Marxism and the effects of the post-war boom. A, post, a boom of that um, uh, dimensions is inevitably, inevitably going to impact on the revolutionary left. And, and Marxist, because even with the best ideas, you're not going to find it easy to convince the average working youth of your revolutionary program. Why? Well, you know, Marx explained that when, a, when an economic system is developing the productive forces, moving forward, the, po the rev revolution is imposed on the agenda. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, if there's full employment and capitalism is giving everybody a job, and also the National Health Service, and nationalizing the railways, and steel, and coal, 
and free education, grants. Uh, all of this is being introduced on the basis of capitalism. Well, most average workers are not interested in, in, in overthrowing the system that's giving me all this. Um, now, that means that in, those, in such a period, Marxism can be developed and built, but at a very slow pace. It's literally winning the ones and twos here and there. But inevitably, the crisis comes. And the same workers who can tolerate capitalism, which is booming, are forced to question the system. And that's when, of course, if you've done the, 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 the patient systematic work over here, <coughs> you have the cadres which can then go into the factories, go into the schools, go into the neighbourhoods, into the trade unions, etc., and build a tendency and start work winning over the workers to a revolutionary um, programme. Now, the, we consider that the, fourth the history of the Fourth International really ends at the end of the 1950s. Because what, what came after that was really one sect after another. Um, and then they went, they zigzagged all over the place. Um, Cliff developed the theory of the permanent arms economy, i.e. arms spending would uh, eliminate the cycle of boom slump of capitalism. Um, they, they bought into the idea that the working class had been bourgeoisified. You know, Ernest Mandel came to speak at a meeting in April 1968 in London. Some of our comrades went along to listen to him. And they asked him about, he was talking about Vietnam and Cuba, every, everything except the working class of Europe. And the communists asked him a question, what about France? What about the working class of France? And he said, oh, working class of France are not going to move for decades. April 1968, France. If anybody knows anything about history, they know what was about to happen. Uh, our comrades could see it living in Britain, and they couldn't see it living in France. It, it's, just, it's just incredible. They, they, this was the consequence of all the previous mistakes, and then you zigzag the other way. You're predicting a revolution, and it doesn't take place. You zigzag the other way, and the revolution is off the agenda for, for a long time. They lost their bearings completely um, and destroyed the Fourth International in, in, in doing so, and also presented a stinking banner to the working class. Trotskyism, before the death of Trotsky in the 1930s, was a clean banner. Here were the Trotskyists who had fought courageously the Stalinist degeneration. Thousands of them were killed in the camps, shot, simply for defending the ideas of October. They were, <clears throat> it was a clean, honest banner. And with Trotsky also sane ideas and correct perspectives and methods. Um, they destroyed all of that with these antics after the Second World War. And we've actually got a problem, which is not only struggling against reformism and Stalinism and the general bourgeois ideology which dominates, but also having to recover ground for the damage done by all these so-called um, Trotskyists on the, um, uh, in, in, in the movement. Um, but that, that's a different story. That's what we're doing now. This is a discussion about the history. But it has got a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons for us today. It's not just out of academic discussion. Because, you see, changes in the objective situation can have an effect on even the, a Marxist organization. I remember in the old days of the military talking to some comrades, and they said, we can't degenerate because we're Marxists. And I remember thinking, what the hell are you talking about? Um, you mean you're sometimes superhuman, non-human, actually. You're pure, and uh, you don't live in the real world, and you're not affected by the situation around you. Um, we've seen revolutionary parties, such as the Bolshevik Party before 1917, rise and fall more than once, destroyed the 1905 defeat 
explains why in 1908 Lenin was writing that book about philosophy. Because even the Bolsheviks were being penetrated by mystical ideas. And Lenin's battle was not about all powers of the Soviets in 1908. It was a materialist scientific understanding of society as opposed to a mystical one. That was his battle then. And that was why. Because the party had collapsed. And in the collapse, demoralization, and then all kinds of strange ideas creep in. It happened to the fourth, after the Second World War. I don't want to reopen that discussion. There's an element of this, is what happened to the militant itself after the uh, poll tax and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The leaders, the majority leaders, uh, didn't, had not understood what had happened in the 80s. They were saying, well, leave the Labour Party, and there's masses of people out there waiting to join us. All we've got to do is leave the Labour Party, which they did. And we said that's not the problem. And it was proven by facts, because they went, they, they, instead of recruiting all the tens of thousands, they said, they lost members. And they drew certain conclusions, things about the Labour Party and all other things, which are a consequence of the mistakes they made then. Because instead of seeing what was actually happening, they were talking about the Red 90s and, and all, the, all the rest of it, when actually the real mood amongst the working class was changing. The defeat of the miners really had a big impact amongst the British working class. Um, and explains why the longevity of the Tories as well um, for, for a certain period of time. So there are lessons to be drawn. It's not, it's not just about the past. Marxists don't discuss the past for the sake of it. Although, a lot of things are quite interesting, such as the, the Hapiru in uh, Canaan, eh, John? Uh, which is also of interest, because there's a lot of things to be learned from that. Um, we discuss these things because we learn from them about how society moves and develops. But discussing what happened to the fourth and what happened later is important for us because it's learning the method, applying Marxism to the real process. And unless we're able to do that, then unfortunately, such processes can be repeated again. Um, if the Marxists make, make mistakes of imposing on reality what they want to see, they will smash uh, any organization that they will build. And I think that's the lesson of the experience of the fourth international. And it's a tragedy, because Trotsky was trying to build an international movement which defended the genuine ideas of, of Bolshevism. It's become, in the eyes of a lot of workers, a joke, uh, the Trots. And they don't really understand what Trotskyism is, because all they see are the so-called Trotskyist groups, the craziest of which are like, you know, like the Sparks, which I referred to this morning, um, who are, are useful, at least, at least we can have a joke. Um, sometimes about this kind of thing. But we have to learn from these experiences in order to be able to build today and to move forward today. That's the purpose of discussing such a thing as the history of the Fourth International. And I'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.